Podcast. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's better than no. Yeah, no would be sad and negative. Or actually, I should have said nah. That's the true antonym. Or na 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 na? No. No. <laughs> of course, you're listening to the Crash Course Podcast. I'm Matt. I'm John. And I'm Steve. Um, I'm going to get right into our album this week. I don't really have anything to talk about. Well, actually, that's not true. How I'll take surprising. a step back. I know. How surprising. Um, He's I already do... rescinding his previous I statement. Am. That's right. Um, I don't think I've promoted our May guest yet, who's coming up, and uh, it's a big one, so I would like to. We are finally getting the proprietor and owner of the Waystation, Andy Heidel, on the podcast. He's coming at the end of May. Um, and uh, I'm very excited to have him on. He's a big music fan. He also has one of the premier local music venues in Brooklyn. The Way Station features tons of music. And what is the significance, I guess, as far as our uh, clientele are concerned, of the Way Station? Well, I mean, we, I, my connection with Andy is I met him when I became a regular of the bar. Of course, the Wasties have been on the podcast in many incarnations, both as a band and as individuals. Mm. And he pretty much found it, sort of, is responsible for the start of the Wasties. Circadian Clock have played at the Way Station as well. We, me and Steve got to see them there. Um, how, Joe about, how about the Way Steez? I said I mean, the I, mean, I know, but you know, the connection has to be apparent. We cannot forget for Joe For all Rude. the non-Wasty people who listen. <laughs> Don't forget Joe Rude. Joe Rude, also I met through Nerdyoki at the Way Station as well. Um, there are actually a lot of connections to the Waystation. We have guests, a guest coming up in July that I met through a band at the Waystation. So um, I want to bring him They're on. They're a hub of sorts. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's important to bring him on, A, because he's a good friend of mine and he's got really great taste in music. But B, I, I want to understand from his perspective, he opened this bar to be a nerd bar and a haven for nerds. You know, that's why it's got a TARDIS in it. That's why it's got steampunk weapons on the wall. But it's also become a music venue and a really good music venue at that. So I'm curious where the transition was. Why he decided to go in that direction. When Westworld was shown, most likely, because that was one of <laughs> the most eye-bleeding things I've ever been a part of. That, of course, is Westworld, based uh, on a Michael Crichton book. I'm just going to theorize that the turning point happened when he realized that music makes money. <laughs> well, actually, that probably doesn't he hurt. doesn't charge at the door, yeah. so... Uh, well, no, occasionally they do, don't they? No. It's no, no never, hey, they've never had cover, huh? No, no cover charge. It's always tip the band. But more people cause music, more drinking. Obviously, but that's why he doesn't charge a cover, because people t- walk away from a cover. But if you find out that it's... Also, because of the orientation of the bar, I mean, there's not like that dedicated back area where people are just going to stay and watch. Instead, there's a lot more of a free, you know, sort of a free floor back and forth between that and the bar. So people might like hang out right by the bar, continuously get drinks while they can still enjoy the band. There's also another connection I forgot to mention. Of course, I work for Wasabosco. I was introduced to Doc Wasabosco by Andy. They're old, old friends. And th- guests like Keita St. Cyr and Hazel Honeysuckle would have never been possible without my connection to the Waystation as well. So so basically, the Waystation has made this show. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and, and, yeah. and in multiple ways. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. <laughs> it's funny to just come out and say it, Matt. Well, it's not you guys, obviously. Well, okay. That, that hurt. Yeah, that hurt a little bit. A little bit. A little bit. Anyway, so that's our main guest. I produce it. Keep, keep, keep that uh, in, stowed in the back of your mind. 
for later this month. This week is my album choice, and I'm actually pretty close to this band. Um, they are one of the seminal bands for my musical development, especially in the 90s. There were a lot of 90s band I bands I've listened to, some who've stayed kind of alt-rock, some who have evolved, changed. But this is a band that's kind of always tried to reinvent themselves a little bit, but have a solid through line. And it's the band Blur. Now, Blur has such strong ties to me because, of course, I discovered them, like most people did, in 1997 when their self-titled record broke with their first single, Song 2. Now, if you don't know it by the title, you will know it by the chorus, which is simply, a woo-hoo! Oh, I know it now. Yeah, yeah. Look at that. Everybody I didn't know it before when you referenced it, but now I do. Everybody recognizes that song by its catchy hook, but I also believe Song 2 to be one of my favorite songs of all time, which is a big statement, especially since there are a lot of bands we've reviewed and talked about. But there are a few reasons why. A, it's concise. It's only about 2 minutes and 30 seconds long. It doesn't overstay its welcome as far as a single on a pop track goes. B, the hook is catchy as hell. Everyone remembers that chorus. Whether you know the name of the song or even the band, when I mentioned what I mentioned before, everybody immediately recognizes that song if they've heard it. Plus, also, I, plus I really enjoy the lyrics. The lyrics are great, a little trippy, a little off the wall, but really enjoyable. Exactly. Woohoo does speak to me on a very, very fundamental, almost existential level. Uh, of course it does. Well, when you're all singing it together, especially that longer one, the woohoo, I mean, that, that just... It, it touches upon a place deep, deep down inside me. A very special place, no doubt. Yes. <laughs> it also does interesting things with the guitar and drum and bass work, but without being overly complicated. We talk a lot about songs that can do simple, simple work, but still make something with it. It's not bad because it's simple, but the simple actually adds a dynamic to it. It's a talent. Again, exercise in brevity, that kind of thing. You come up with something simple that everyone can just relate to in a sense. I believe there's a, there's a definite talent behind that that can't be overlooked. And this also, one of the final reasons it's probably one of my favorite songs, it's one of the earliest anthemic songs. It sounded anthemic in a time where not every band put out an anthemic song. It was just very catchy, very engrossing. And again, if you felt it got a little repetitive, it barely stuck around long enough for you to even think that. So, of course, after hearing that song, they stuck with me. And I went back into their discography, got into a ton of their work. Um, they actually originated in England. Um, they formed in 1988, though their first album didn't actually come out till 1991. Um, they've, of course, had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight albums. Uh, this newest record that we're reviewing today being the eighth. They had a, a break between 2003 and 2008, but all of the band members are the same. Of course, those band members are Damon Alburn, who we reviewed before. He had a solo record that we covered and have mentioned at length about his production work with the Gorillaz. Um, also, Graham Coxon, Alex James, and David Rontree. Um I really have identified with Blur strongly because, I mean, you, uh, Steve knows it nauseam. I go back to the 90s stuff. But that self-titled album really resonated with me because there was something about the angst that wasn't whiny. It was just, it was presented in a way that was very... It relatable. Wasn't, it wasn't overbearing. Right. Which is the big problem with angst. Yes. But this was an angst that was relatable and understandable, especially in the 90s for myself, going through high school. Um, they've, of course, had many influences as they go. They kind of started in shoegaze kind of territory, but they moved more towards indie when they hit the States, and they've kind of stuck there, but still adding different flavors of hip-hop and other things, all different kinds of genres, and meld them, which, of course, is also seen in Alburn's work with the Gorillas, who primarily focus around kind of a very hip-hop focus though they branch out there too. Um, it's also important to stay, state that their last album came out 
12 years ago, 2003. So the new album, which we are reviewing today, The Magic Whip, is 12 years in the making. Um, I mean, they broke up in 2003 and got back together in 2008, so you could surmise that maybe they've been working on this for since 2008, which is a long time to be working on a single album. Well, maybe. <laughs> a lot yeah. of times there's a certifiable hiatus in there. They are allotted vacations. But um, I was excited about this album from the minute I heard the single because it reminded me of what I loved about about Blur, about Damon Albarn specifically as an artist, and considering how much I loved that solo record, which we all were quite fond of, I was very excited to get into this record. That was back in episode 109. Go back, check it out. It's just, it's nice for me to be able to bring a band that I know that you guys at least like a member of, and have liked the work in the past at least a little, because it's not like an Eve 6 or Matchbox 20 where you guys are kind of along for the ride and you f might find something you like. This is a band where at least some of their works or parts of their divergent work you've been interested in or quite enjoyed. Well, I've always been a fan of the Gorillas ever since their very first album. I mean, especially to, with culminating in Demon Days. I mean, I thought that album was wildly new for the time and it showed an artist who had his hand in a bunch of different things and was able to kind of rally them all together in, in sort of one fairly unique thing for the time. I, I really couldn't even compare them to anybody as of 2005. I could cite influences, but when the album was released, I was just like, that's a new artist. Yeah, and I like that they created this mystique around the band because they created these characters, you know, which which added to that, that band. Um, but we're not reviewing the Gorillas. We are reviewing Blur. Again, the album is The Magic Whip, so why don't we get into it? Magic Whip, yes. And the first track is Lonesome Street. Now, I immediately heard a lot of those 90s influences that you that you referenced. From just the beginning here, it, it starts hinting at the street side barrenness. In the first few seconds, there's sirens in the background. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, this little clean, patched guitar uh, brings us down the blue scale and into probably the most 90s riff I've heard in years. Maybe, dare I say, since the 90s. Um, <laughs> and that in, even includes 90s bands that we've done here. Um, essentially throw a dart into the 90s and whatever rock band you strike will probably have used this riff or something similar to it, but that's not a bad thing. It's, it's, it's a fun riff, um, although there's that little learning curve where at the beginning of albums I'm pretty accepting of things. So again, here it's all just nostalgia and it's, um, it's carefree, harmless nostalgia at this point. Uh, to describe it just a bit, it's a fairly heavy riff, it's guitar-driven for sure, but all the instruments are pretty much in just the same groove. Two guitars at least, as, part as, I, as far as I can tell, uh, tied very closely with the drums, the bass is there, but it's pretty muffled, it's almost inaudible, partially because it's also so tied with the riff, um, so it's bound to blend in, but also because of the recording quality. Uh, the whole thing kind of almost has this live recording appeal. Both the guitars and the bass, it seems, like they make no attempt to really disguise the effect of the amplifier reverberating. There's like a slight muddiness in there, which is, I think, what evokes that 90s feel so strongly with me. We think of the 90s as being a much dirtier era by choice, of course, with its studio work more in tune with the ballroom live acoustics, and I heard this right as of that opening riff. Obviously, that's a generalization. Not everybody was doing that back in the 90s, but it was a definite trend, and I kind of see a little bit of a throwback here, even if it's to themselves. Yeah, I definitely see that as well, and what I really like about it is that, again, what you said, it's fun. It's not just a band that's 
in imitating the 90s or just banking on it there's you know this is exactly pretty much what i expected from blur the minute i turned on the album like i was not surprised by this sound being what i came up with and what i've been listening to from them over the years so it was nice to kind of be engaged by that immediately sort of like what we experienced with modest mouse right and it's those subtle elements you know that's really what make it again it's not that emulation it's those subtle little things that hit it back at the end of the day this is really like anywhere rocksville but that's that's a good thing that you can't quite place it it's just those little elements, the recording quality and things that seem to like harken back a bit. But that's a subtle enough element that I, I, I chuck it up to, uh, to delicate procedure. And another little subtle element that slight out of tune nature throughout the whole song. Everything was just a little bit off. Timing may have been just a little bit off. There did it seem to be like something to be in the way form. that in the, the guitars like like reacted together. Again, p- perhaps the way it reacts with the amplifier like reverberating or the way it's mic'd or something. It almost sounds like there's a dissonance in there that is not created by an actual dissonance, but it's created by the recording quality itself. Again, very su- subtle, very delicate. And that was, for me, even a stronger link back to the 90s. That, the more echoey-oriented voice, there's a lot of just, it feels like nostalgia is going to be a main focus, not just of this song, but of this entire album, if you're going to go this heavy this early on. Right. Well, I'll get to the voice in just one second. First, I'll just uh, mention a couple notes about the, the chordal work here. First of all, it starts off as nothing terribly complex. The chords kind of pivot back and forth between D major and B major, which sort of hints at like stepping us out of the key with the secondary dominant. Uh, B major sort of serves as the, the 5 over 2 for, for, for D major. But it's not like we resolve to the two. We just pivot. Again, it's a fun riff. It's a good stage setter, and it keeps it very, very lighthearted. And from there, of course, we go into the verse, which you is the same exact riff. Um, it's just the new element is his voice. And that's what I really wanted to, to address here because that was something that was interesting for me, not really having the same background experience with Blur as you do, Matt, to hear him sort of invoke this almost punk style in this, or at least punk perhaps as it would be in like in Britain even as early as the 80s. And I felt that in his delivery here in the verses. Well, I think what's funny about that that you only notice that now is as someone who's a fan of the majority of his work. I will admit that the day, the, his solo record didn't seem to have that kind of a twinge to it. But Gorilla stuff, some of it definitely did. But I think because of the way it was presented and the way 2D delivered the lyrics, there was still a little bit of a difference. I could hear it in the Gorillas because I'm used to it from Blur, but someone coming the other way around, I guess I could see how it would kind of be a surprise. Yeah, no, that that's probably the kind of thing that creeps up on you. But yeah. it's, the, it's the matter of factual delivery, I think, that is probably what lends itself to the punk environment. It's just that with the production quality was so high on the gorillas, it all seemed to it all seemed to just blend in and work together in a modern way. Whereas here everything is thinned back and there's the harkening back in the musical element, so it seems as if it's standing out more to me as a direct link to to punk. This combination delivered with the lines, and I really do enjoy the lines right off the bat. This I'm I'm used to blur being a little bit nonsensical. A little bit. That's what I like. That's what I like about a lot of music. As recently as Modest Mouse, just going back to the nonsensical idea to really be a little off the cuff but still trying to tell a story in your own way always intrigues me. And to have the chorus work, and if you have nobody left to rely on, I'll hold you in my arms and let you drift. It's got to be that time again, and June, June will be over soon again. That chorus, his delivery is just so spot on for how he's pairing it up with the vocals and with the slight change from the verse work to the chorus work. Well, it's funny you mention that as the chorus because that was a transition to me that was 
so stark it it it, it seemed almost to like take away from like the verse work, for instance, as I described, like the the element that leads us into that is really more of a hook in anything. Yeah. The riff is is I feel that is almost the chorus in itself. It's the thing that the song keeps jumping back to and anchoring itself back to. And the fact that that simply plays over the verses in the background is is almost just you know it's besides the point. It still is that's where the song wants to be. But the bolder departure here is in the exact spot that John just read. It's this transition that immediately took me out of this. Uh, familiar environment and into something wholly new, which got me really excited for this album. It's as if the song suddenly took on a much more mystical air. It steps over to F sharp minor, which is the minor third for D, and that's kind of what like an earlier chord had hinted at. Halfway through, I remember in the verse, there was a little reference to like C sharp minor, where we just stepped over there just, just for a moment. But, you know, it still keeps with the secondary dominant thing. This time is like a five chord of, of something to come. And that was this thing right here, the five of F sharp minor, which is where we are now. And it in here, it just sort of, it's, we're entrenched in this in this uh, environment, it feels. Like we're pivoting back and forth between uh, the earlier five over two, uh, B major, which serves as this chord, F sharp minor, serves as that chord straight up four chord. So it's almost like a modulation at this point. It felt like the, the song had shifted that that intensely into this more mystical environment. There's a lot of other reasons, apart from just chordal reasons, as to why I feel this. But it's because of that major shift I'm going to regard it as the chorus. Because otherwise, it's really very much the freeform nature of the song itself that defeats the whole chorus, verse, chorus, verse. They're more, merely, when you get down to the nitty-gritty of it, the flow of it and everything like that is just a series of different verses going on there. But because yeah. this part gets harkened back to, both lyrically and to some extent musically, I'd have to regard it as sort of like the anthemy, well, no, the anti-anthem of a chorus. Yeah, but to see, there's a problem with that because at the very, very end of this song, we actually do have a more anthemy thing, and that is, in fact, the title, Going Down to Lonesome Street, Going Down to Lonesome Street, and we have to wait the entire song before we get to that point, and that really utilizes the same riff that is in what we've been calling the verse and the hook. Hence, I just can't see that as the chorus. It's the kind of thing that when you read, it feels so separate. And again, delivery. This is what I really want to want to address with this section here, yeah. our transition, um, transition bridge, as I will be calling it. Um, there's a lot of elements that add to the mystical effect here, apart from just the chords. For one thing, the guitars drop out completely. I mean, again, that's been steady throughout the hook, throughout the verse, that we just had this, this steady, unchanging riff, and all of a sudden, they're gone. And the drums, which were also fairly steady, they thin down to just de very delicate eighth notes, just on the hi-hat. And then an entire choir of, of, I assume, the band's vocals, or perhaps him himself uh, doubled several times, they divvy up the harmonies of, of both of these chords, the uh, F-sharp minor and the, and the B major. Uh, in addition to that, you also have like these these almost folk-like comping instruments. It sounded almost like flute uh, instruments. I couldn't quite pin that down, but uh, it, again, that's really I think the more the more mystical side of this. And then in addition to that, you also have to address his vocals and the manner in which he's singing those lyrics. All of a sudden, it's not really punk style anymore. It's a lot more longing and and filled with this little twang of sadness, kind of just gliding on with the, the mysticism that he's created. It's it's quite beautiful beautiful. And they're not they're not playful anymore as as he was back when 
he was singing in the verses lyrics. I mean, granted, of course, that that punk style lends itself to you know more quirkier deliveries. I noticed, especially when I uh, was talking about that '80s style punk, there's this like staccato manner of speaking that was really uh, popular at the time. Just little short little um, emphases on syllables. A lot of times that didn't work in the song's favor because then you couldn't hear what he was saying. But that's separate in this case. You can hear all those verse lyrics. But here, it's separate. He just treated this uh, as a chance to to uh, croon by, by contrast. And what I really like that both musically and vocally it does go through shifts. You kind of have this happy-go-lucky kind of demeanor and emotionality of the ver- verses, quote-unquote, of the track. But when you get to this different instrument instrumentation, you're right. He does hit a more longing kind of almost 2D style singing, 2D the character from the Gorillas, a more drawn-out, slowed, intent singing that definitely has a different, completely different style from the earlier part. Right. And then out of that, we get an even more unexpected transition. I was like, all right, if you want to move to F sharp minor and B major, that's great. You can pivot between two chords, but it's not what he did instead. And I have to reference these things because these are things we actually just don't get quite a lot in, in, you know, a lot of the pop music or pop oriented music that we've been reviewing. All of a sudden here, he just decides to take this unexpected transition, uh, the choiring that that was being sung over the using those two chords they sort of slide downward it's like a pitch bend just kind of like warped our impressions of what this mystical world really is and everything just thins out and now all of a sudden a lone guitar steps forward and for the first time a really clean bass steps in here a clean audible and we have this b flat augmented chord which is as mystical as it gets frankly in terms of uh in terms of chord work and that's just a half a step down from where we were. It was actually my favorite moment in this song, and actually one of my favorite moments on the album, dare I say that right up front. Because after that, we do jump right back to the verses, and now all of a sudden you have a new set of lyrics. Um, so get up, so get yourself up, get past on your way. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Taking off again, the 514 to East Grinstead, you sent me off to sea. We're going up, 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 coursing on our greatest night, and talking types will let us down again. Talk, talk, you're arse all night, you want to be there. You know, and this is still in very much the same line as the very first verse. It's actually, the, it's, a, it's the same riff, essentially. This is where the song wants to be, I well, feel. It's the, the verse, verse, it's the verse, but it utilizes the riff. That is the strongest part, and that's what's going to come back much later in the track. There is a different element that gets added into this on top of it, and that is this synth beat. And this is the first time when knowing Blur, separate from all of his other work, knowing Blur, to have a synth in there was was a great addition for the song itself. It took us outside of the realm of just the purely natural music that I kind of associate with them and brought in the other elements that had been worked upon with the gorillas, with his individual work, and added a new little, like, jolt of energy to this second verse. Well, that synth was there earlier, but I agree it was a lot more playful. Even the vocals seemed more playful here, especially the way he just says, you know, up, 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 up. I love that because he actually like kind of goes up the scale at that moment. It's, 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 again, it's a quirky little choice and it's, it's right up with what Damon Auburn likes to do. I also like the quirky choice that when he says going down, there's a bomb dropping sound bite, like in a cartoon. And yeah. his voice, whistle. His exactly. voice follows and it, his too. Voice I follows mean, it, yeah. he's a very animated singer, and he's really showcasing both sides of this animation the more out there kind of a piece in what I call the chorus, and the more quirky, character driven pieces within the verses. Exactly. 
And then lo and behold, he has yet another transition later on, which was another very strange chord change out of that last uh, B major chord we're thrust due to an E flat major, which is a very strange choice, as if like the B major was the the, the flat six of this new home and modulation, but that's not the case because then all of a sudden we're thrust into E major, a whole step modulation, and this is the first time I could actually certifiably say it's a modulation as opposed to just a momentary shift um, because we repeat the riff again. We have a new set of verses here um, for yeah, just a, a few chords themselves, and then an inventive modulation brings us right back to, uh, to D. So, you know, it... I, I have a hard time actually perceiving what he was doing with this song. I'm just along for the ride. And that's what I like best about it. I well, like the I love the fact that I can't name what's the chorus and what's the verse. Instead, it's just him taking me through his world. I feel like he's, I don't know, put on the Willy Wonka hat or something. <laughs> I mean, well, not that this is like terribly weird music, but again, for what people generally perceive as like, oh yeah, it's a, it's a 90s band, you know, and the way in which he kind of like tricks you at the outset with something that would seem a lot more straightforward. Well, to be clear also, they've experimented with this kind of stuff throughout their career. They've not just been a straight indie band probably since the 90s. They really did kind of play with stuff, with synth and with, you know, beats and all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was clear that during the career of blur that damon alburn wanted to do more and that could be why they took a hiatus because he wanted to do other things that the band itself wasn't going full completely into and that's why he may he formed the gorillas and he did a solo project but you know it does still of course absolutely have its roots in that indie rock sound but they've always had a little more than that Right, but of course that is what he chooses to end the track on is yes. that indie rock sound that plays over the chorus and if you have nobody left to rely on, I'll hold you in my arms and let you drift. Going down to Lonesome Street. Going down to Lonesome Street. And that's pretty much the way the track plays out. And he introduces more little quirky elements. It ends with all that whistling and then, you know, more quirkier synth. And it's just him having fun at that point. And I, I both love and hate the repetitive nature of that last little line, going down to Lonesome Street. I want to hate it, only because it's kind of a trope to just repeat, repeat, repeat. But the fact that he does change it up, not vocally, not so much, but to really fool around with the music and to have, not epic, but, you know, something uh, akin to the quirky side of epic, I guess, to really fool around with it and play with it, it's a, it's a nice little way to end the introduction to your album. To end that first track and to be like, alright, now let's get on with the show. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, and it certainly puts a perspective as to why that's the chorus. It's just we had to wait for it. It's just it's the chorus we've really been hearing since the beginning. It's just, you know, now he's got a statement. So that brings us to track two, New World Towers. I appreciated this as a transition, as a, as a, as a the logical next step from where he was starting. Right, and it's very smooth, going right into a vocal and piano-paired intro. It was very, kind of had that radio voice that John's brought up before. Which and I blur... love, okay, I love his radio voice. I right. hate it a lot of times, but I love his radio voice. Da Damon Albarn's radio voice happens to be one of my favorite things also, and, and, it's, and it's really really good here and it's paired very well with the piano i like his range damon alburn kind of stays in a comfortable zone but he still has ups and downs he doesn't just kind of ride 
very run of the middle. He does have a variation. Well, this is that sort of quintessential like rustic piano. You know, it's it's if you could have a rustic piano. I mean, it's in the background. It's fairly lo-fi, and it's just it's just rustling along in the background with this A minor. Um, and yeah, he sings a a pretty plainly A minor melody here. But what I really like about it is what he does over that. Again, he's a post-production master as far as what we've encountered. He interrupts himself with what I gather is himself. Hans. Just Hans here and there. But these uh, little or like, Oz. Or but Oz. They're or like Oz. these post-production vocalizations of a single note that step in right over his melody, and they tend to hint at very dissonant tones, considering that his melody is very, very sternly in A minor, and yet I think it's he steps forward with these these notes that just don't quite match whatever chord he's on at that moment, and I love it. These little non-chord tones, they're 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 unique and they 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 paint this out to be sort of a dissonant departure from the first track. And he doesn't just use it to make interruptions. Sometimes he will pause his vocals in order to get one of those in. Sometimes he'll actually try to sing over one of those. It's an odd choice, but frankly, it's it's very chaotic and it, but still conforms with the melody itself. It's a really, really interesting idea. The one thing is, I would have liked him to potentially do a little bit further range on this. I agree 100%. It was there in the very, very beginning. It didn't really persist. Instead, the track kind of goes through different directions. We get we got a, quite a few verses before we actually get a chorus. Um, the second verse sort of layers on different elements. The percussion steps in uh, a much thicker with what I'd probably call his signature style percussion. It, it's something that's just wholly him. I hear him do it just about all of his work. Uh, these stumps step in much stronger with these like watery effects in the background. Everything sounds a little bit submersed. The bass steps in, it's, it's sparser, but it comes in at really key moments. And that's one of my favorite parts of this song, the bass. The bass is, it's not just walking, it's fully talking, it's working with everything else. Walking but because it doesn't have a lot to say, it's more important to hear it where it lands. And its punctuation is just so great over the very pared down. But there is that further element that he introduces later on in the verses, the guitar. What I really like that about the, the third verse, I think. What I really like about the acoustic riff guitar here is that it's very reminiscent of El Manana from the Gorillas. It has that kind of twang, you know, and that song of course is all guitar driven. That whole song is all guitar and vocals, and it had that same kind of hollow acoustic sound that I really love. It it, it creates a guitar groove that kind of really pulls the song forward. And it also seems like that's the moment where where this like makes its shift back into the chorus. It's like born right out of these uh, this third verse lyrics. Green, green, the neon green, new world towers, plane flying overhead, satellite showers, falls like confetti on the cavalcade, the flashboat sea no longer is reflecting in you. And he kind of slows down toward the end here, I noticed. And then all of a sudden he changes it up with the chorus, which only comprises of, of a really stronger, more impactful melody here. He steps in and it's just a lot more pivotal. Seven on me, seven on me, seven on the left-hand side, seven on me. Um, I thought that was absolutely beautiful at this point. I mean, it, I don't know. There's just something about the slow, relaxed pace of this track that I was just, I was very attracted to and unoffended by. Um... Some people could perceive it as dull. I was. No. It's too early in the album for me to really even start judging in that department. Well, if the bass was the statement, the guitar was the response to that statement. And all around, all they did was talk to one another while the vocals were going on, while the rest of the story, and the percussion. 
all these elements coming together, it's like you have different conversations going on at once. Well, it seemed as if the bass had its own solo there also, like oh, right, that following was the, solo the chorus itself. It was with sort a of, sort of like organ piece that was synthesized. I don't know what was going on right there, but that bass combination between the two yeah. was really, well, first off, great bass solo, something new that I always love. You know but, why I liked it also? Because it sounded kind of Spanish-influenced. Like the bass itself. Granted, of course, whenever anybody plays, you know, the acoustic guitar in such a fashion, it's very easy to go back, ah, oh, look, that, that's, you know, that Spanish-influenced guitar. Well, because, sure. Of the, course. And the song that I referenced, El Manana, is littered with it. So, but of course, it's here, connected. But he was able to do the same thing with the bass, and I don't hear that... Ever? Yeah, ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean... That's just, you know, that, that's that's a credit to the bassist himself. As far as I'm concerned about this song, though, it is the seminal slow groove. Like, especially that I've heard in a while. It just, it fits that nice little niche so perfectly. And I'm just along for the ride. Like, I have no questions or quips. It, I know that it doesn't have huge, huge highs and lows, but it's not supposed to. It's just kind of supposed to mill you out, man. Just go along for the ride. Well, what I like about it, going back to the, the, the likening to conversations, each instrument is sort of having a different thing that they're doing, different conversation. They all end up being not quite background, but it's like hearing a bunch of different people having a bunch of different conversations that somehow just all work together. They all come together and make a solid piece. It feels very natural to have all this chaos thrown together. And, well, frankly, the final product might be my best song. My favorite song on the album. Well, this song is up there for me. I don't know if it's my favorite yet, but for sure, I really liked... You know what it was that was nice about this song is that it's rare that you get to an emotional place on an album so early where you just feel comfortable. And it's not comfortable to a point of boredom. It's comfortable as in you feel comfort. You feel relaxed. You feel at ease. You feel at ease, yeah. I think a lot of that also has to do with the fact that this track kind of jump-started a trend on this album that we'll see later on and that's sort of like this penchant for a for a beach-like environment yeah. um that comes through with almost like a little little reggae rhythms at times you know again really really subtle things that i think are partially just aided with his vocals themselves which are very relaxed and feel as if he's crooning to you like by a beachside and the sun is low and i don't know it this it's almost like minstrel-like vocals and yeah, I just in general I, here I was ready to I was ready to deal with that environment. And it's also again this is early in the album. He could kind of take it anywhere from here. So from there, and let's... he does take it anywhere. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't pass up that transition. <laughs> yeah, go anywhere. Um, in this go. case, go out. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> this track starts with a lot of guitar distortion. I mean, a lot, and it's. It's, 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 it's defined by like yeah, screeching, almost yeah, a feedback sound. Sound bite kind of quality, which I mean, it's not foreign for things that he's done before, but it did seem a little odd to kind of have this ear piercing guitar distortion well, it's followed little, by drum and bass right away. It's a little funky, and that's a that's a little, a little bit. bit of a different element that he's introducing. It well, to the us drum now. and bass following that distortion um, is what gives it that kind of funky feel. It's I'll, not funk with a capital F, of course not, but it's definitely got elements of. I feel the need to defend my funk or something. No, I mean, I get the strut. I think let's use that word yeah, sure. yeah, more appropriate. A slight strut here. At the same time, it also can become a little bit trudging. And then when you combine that with that screeching, it's it's almost unnerving intentionally, just at the outset. Um, first of all, this really kind of thinned down the chordal structure of this album uh, quite a bit. This uh, his song is an A minor, and it basically just goes between that and F major. So one 
major six, minor one, major six. And that's pretty much the whole entire song. So much that I could really detect the punk roots in this track. We're, we're back to that again. It's not just in the chordal progression here, but it's also in the vocal delivery, which is similar, if not even uh, really furthering what he was doing in the first track. I mean, his delivery is so stuttered, so stifled at times. He almost is doing that thing that a lot of punk rockers do, which is cut off their vocals to the point that you can't quite understand what they're doing. And of course, a lot of that is, you know, the uh, the accent gap that exists across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> but that it, there's really a vocal st a style, and it's a it was a powerful musical element. I'm I'm a little bit hesitant about its 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 placement yet. To be fair, though, it's not unexpected for Blur or for Damon's no. vocals. Because one of the things about Song 2 that made it so popular also at the time was besides the chorus, no one knew what the hell the lyrics were. So the way he delivered them in the original, when that song originally came out, it was just, you couldn't just Google the lyrics back then. So it was very kind of, what is he saying? Yeah, I got my head checked. I don't understand. I, like, if what are these if lyrics? If you're lucky, you'll get them in, in, in the book jacket. Right. Uh, or, but then usually, I remember a lot of punk album covers tended to be... Just two pages. No no, no. Two pages. Lyrics. Very, or, or sometimes like like filled with all this like heavy printer ink that you yeah. can barely even read the lyrics because they choose some like asinine font. So singing in that style is not foreign to him. But I do agree that at this point also, once we get to like the midpoint of the song, and I know I'm getting a little ahead of myself, the, the clutter gets so apparent that between the, the singing style, which he's known for, but is also a little low and hard to understand, plus the clutter, plus the distortion, now you really can't understand what he's saying. Well, you know, it's a, it's a split problem there. I'm not so sure that the sound effects were really like stopping me from hearing what he was saying it was more like a separate issue like it felt like that there was content here or if the content was about to like burgeon forth into something else then it became very clear like this is a thin track that is enhanced and made most palatable by the fact that he puts stuff in the way yeah <laughs> i mean I, no, i'm serious like those are that's what sound effects are and he has such a uh, a, a liking to this this um you know little things here from the left ear from the right ear little pops little sizzles and they're at their peak here and instead of really reacting with the whole they're just they're just acting and, and no one really asked them to <laughs> well uh, yeah by the by the midpoint especially going past the midpoint and really bad at the end the great bass the bass that I was thoroughly enjoying is it's still there but it's hard to pick out and I kind of wanted to fit with that groove. The guitar, the rude but fun guitar that was going up and down and around and accenting everything, it was still there but it was hard to follow. The chorus, it's grittier, it's, it's got more of that rude fun in it and that's kind of like the summation of what's going on here. There's a lot of fun in the instruments but they're getting in each other's way. They are being moved. See, again, I want to reel it forth. back a little bit. It's not that they're getting in each other's way. It's not that anything the, I think in this track is hard to follow. Parts. I find it very digestible. It's just, they're... It's, I, no, 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 no. Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. They're, they're color, and this track consists mostly of color. No, no, no. Let me rephrase. Fun. Let me rephrase. Everything is getting in front of each other. They're all vying. The little tidbits, the little sound bites that are going up there, even his vocal work. It's vying for center stage, so you can't really focus on any one thing. Because once you start getting into that bass groove, well, something's going to pop in your ear, and you're going to lose track of it. See, it's, I just, it's don't, a problem I just don't hear it that they way. Both, That's not my point. <laughs> I feel that they both coexist. I feel like the real problem with that is that it doesn't go anywhere. With all of this stuff going on, we still kind of stay in the same place. And lyrically, it doesn't really either. I mean, there are some interesting lyrics here, but all in all, it kind of gets lost to the mess. I mean, Well, that speaks yeah. to the song itself, the message itself. It's 
very much a kind of a drudgery kind of a piece when you when you look at the lyrics and start digesting those. I mean, that said, I still enjoyed the track. I just felt like it could have done more with it or gone somewhere. Maybe drop some of the stuff out or put more in. Make it a wall of sound for a second to jar your audience and then bring their attention in with a sharp, silent lyric part. Like, I don't know. Something like that. Have a variation of some kind instead of just kind of doing a lot, doing nothing with a lot. Yeah, actually, that's a really concise way to put it. Essentially, um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm really more with Matt here uh, it, as far as my approach to this track. I think it's, I think that a lot of these sound effects, as, as cool as they can be and as uh, as intelligent as they can be from a post-production standpoint, I think they disguise the fact that there's really no content here. Um, musically, that is. Lyrically, it could be argued something to the contrary. Uh, I'd like to just read a little bit here, starting with the first verse. I'm getting sad alone, dancing with myself. Greedy go-getter goal, the luxury of stealth. I'm seedy and the whole, dancing with myself. I get into my bed, I do it to myself. I just want to put it out that that's great writing. That's, that's, great, that's great, almost like beat poetry, uh, if taken from beat poetry um, in, in that delivery. But instead, because he uses the more punk-style delivery, it actually kind of works. Again, it's not that I can't understand him. It was really more just that I was, like, questioning what he was doing at this point. I'm curious about the content, and that's why he's just kind of like, all right, he's putting other stuff in the way. Maybe there's clutter in his life. I start thinking about this. To the local. To the lo- oh, oh, I go out. To the local. By myself. To the local. I did it to my head. There's nothing to be addressed now. There's nothing to get up about. Because we do it all the time. The shepherd is undone. Done it all again. I get ready to go. The greed go-getter con. It, it, see, this, this is interesting. I feel like we're getting somewhat of, like, a confused mental state. Or a, 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 a journal entry of sorts in a stream of consciousness. But, but the problem with that is, as we've said before... You, we're getting that from reading it. And we're getting it from reading it. In yeah. the context of the song, even if we can't understand the lyrics in the context of the song, the song is not doing enough to paint a picture, and the lyrics alone don't carry it. And and I would make the argument, and I know a lot of people would make the argument, that the sound effects do carry it, as in, like, the clutter of life or something, sure. or the, the, the confused mental state. Um, but I would argue that doesn't. I would say that that, that is, um, that's kind of forcing it, in a way. You know, hammering it home with external uh, pieces as opposed to the, to the central portion. Um, so that was kind of a shame. Again, it's still a very, very listenable track in my opinion. I do not think it's... Uh, I do not think it's... It's definitely not a wall of sound. Yeah. For sure not. Yeah. And of course, you know, the instrumental can be kind of cool too. The sounds tend to get more industrial and I still think it's just that it's a great experiment to hear, again, what he can do because he's a very, very talented uh, Remember, Damon Albarn's the same, guy. the same post-production guy that released one of the Gorillaz albums, a kind of B-Sides album, but it was all done on his iPad by himself. He did all the vocals, he did all the instrumentation, all of it on a single iPad. I mean, that's an impressive production experiment. He strikes me as the kind of guy who can literally just, like, take a subway train and get off, and he has a song in his head just from, like, hearing sounds. Yeah. You know? And I I feel like he applies this stuff later. I can see him as the guy that carries around a recorder. Who knows? Yeah, he was probably recording the subway train and goes home, remixes it, and boom, he's got the subway Yeah, that's what I had originally heard as, like, the local, and, like, oh, take the local, as opposed to the express. Um, (laughs) Let's move on to the next track. Track four, Ice Cream Man. I mean, from from an overall perspective, I actually quite enjoyed this song just because it was a little quirky and I like quirky. But it starts with a very techie intro, the most techie intro we've kind of gotten. Clearly synth of some kind or a computer, lots of beep boop, as John likes to say. 
um, that builds that builds pretty gradually. Um, Even quarterly, it, it builds gradually. We start off with just kind of like pivoting between one and five. Then it seems to take on again gradually. It seems to take on more of a, a basic four chord progression, which was just minor one, minor five, uh, major six, major seven, kind of crawling its way back up to one. But that's the round that persists again for probably the duration of this song. There might be some moments where it departs, um, but that's really where this song exists. It doesn't really go outside of that, um, but I think that's designed to, to better accentuate the vocal style that's presented in the song. Right, and also, uh, in this case, I'm going to say that the sound effects are a little bit more integrated. I mean, there's sort of this accompanying, uh, sort of rapidly arpeggiating synth that goes with these each of these chords, it seems, um, and not always matching the chords. There's something like a little bit off about it. it. It arpeggiates and it feels like it warbles a little bit, and there's just there's something off about it. Again, maybe that like slight little hint of dissonance, but I like it. Um, the only problem is that this seems very contrasted uh, sectionally with a much more like jam-like guitar-bass combo. Um, and I, I don't know, something about that was kind of back to the beach environment that we heard in, like, track two, and I felt like it didn't quite match with... I, I want to hear his more interesting sound effect here. This time, it had it had, it had had uh, potential, and, I, and he didn't do anything with it. I was very disappointed, especially when, after that first little beat work, the synth riff, gets added to the guitar, the bass, the sort of chimey work that's off of the background that... Still a little bit divorced from the other soundbite-ish pieces that were going on. It all felt like there was two songs going on at once. And these songs weren't quite meshing natural versus synthetic, or however you want to put it. They weren't as uniform. They were by no means separate entities. But it was two sides of a different coin going on right there. And it was a little bit jarring, especially when... Really, he goes heavy into the more natural sounding guitar work and things like that. The synth writ, I couldn't get out of my head. I just kept hearing it over and over again. Even though it really was a background piece, it was stuck there for me. So, you know, I, I felt that that was... Like, it, it, after a while, I didn't even notice anymore. Actually, it was the kind of thing, uh, to clarify my point, it was the kind of thing that felt like it was going to develop into something else. But then once I realized it was really just the riff, then I accepted it. Yeah, um, it's just kind of blended into the background for me also. What I also like, though, mostly about this track, the, the key point for me is the vocals. I feel like the music, I agree with John, though not for the same reasons, but I agree with John that the music did kind of not really go anywhere. It kind of just stayed in this one place. But the vocals, I like... Well, two places, actually. Two pla yeah. Those two places. But I like the way the, the vocals were delivered. It was almost like, this ice cream man, this ain't your kid's ice cream man. Like, this is a creepy ice cream man. You don't want the kids anywhere near this yeah, ice cream man. Yeah, but it doesn't come off as fully creepy when you read the lyrics. That's my... No, no, it does It's weird. Sense. I don't know what the lyrics are supposed to mean. And this is something I don't normally claim, but I can't really find or pin down the one metaphor that might explain this song. I don't know that there's song. a metaphor. I think it's just supposed to be a little odd. I think the whole song is just supposed to be a little odd. Well, okay, looking at the third verse, after the first two verses were kind of on the nose describing a, an ice cream man... The third one, here comes the ice cream man parked at the end of the road. With a swish of his magic whip, Title. all the people in the party froze. I was only 21 when I watched it on TV. I was racing in my heart and then something new. Oh, 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 oh something new. Of course. But I don't know. Like, okay, something seems... weird happened. There's but they no don't go into detail, yeah. It's, it's, it's tantalizing yeah. if it was a little bit better presented, but... 
I, I want this fulfilled. I want the story here. Because they were like, oh, it's an ice cream man. Here's chocolate chip, Rocky Road, what have you. And then something happened. What is it? What is it? You gotta, you gotta tell me here. You gotta tell me here. I mean... Yeah, it's, it's really strange because there's like actually an innocence that comprises most of this track. I think that it, the verses and the delivery sometimes feels very childlike. Uh, going back to the very first verse, here comes the ice cream man parked to the end of the road with the swish of his magic whip. All the people in the party froze. Actually, it, it's, it's much the same as later yeah. um, until uh, screwball chocolate chip umbrella in his white glove hand shade from the sun was his intention it's just a little bit more descriptive and the most of the track is him being descriptive in this sort of childlike um uh very attached to the meter kind of delivery and i, I enjoyed that and the music matches it in in at least the relaxed sense but there's something there is something more to the story and i want it this is not our gene wilder willy wonka it's our weird ass Johnny Depp Willy Wonka. Yeah, but Willy Wonka that 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 movie, regardless of how good you think it is, is still has still has a conclusion, still has yeah. a something. You realize to it. that I would like never let my kid go over to the Johnny Depp uh, ice cream truck. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's the point. I think, but I agree. The the story is definitely anticlimactic. I think that's the word we're really looking for. Is there's no yeah. resolution and it's anticlimactic. That, I still enjoyed the song as a whole, but I felt like it it you know it just left me wanting. Musically, I thought it was simply this. It 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 either has the problem of being too relaxed or not relaxed enough. <laughs> um. Again, that's it's. Fair. It's there's two logical directions he could have taken this instead he just kind of like walks down the medium and that may very well be the goal to leave us wondering um WTF. But and, yeah and, <laughs> and even like this musical elements that step in here uh like the bass solo steps in here pretty bland it's not really a solo it just no. kind of like has its own little uh it's a feature line. more than a solo yeah it's it's a it repeats its own riff and that's pretty much it it's bland it's repetitive um Four chord progression. Yeah, there's just very little else. Actually, the only thing I liked about this was the chorus. The the way he delivers the lines, something new. Yeah, something the way he you. sings it. Yeah. Yeah, and especially that something new. You uh, <laughs> something new. Something you. Something you'd. Yeah. Again, he even lets us like he leaves the story hanging on on that. It's definitely intentional. Would you would what? Ah, <laughs> uh, I hate you. <laughs> no, you don't. No, I don't. This is. This is Enjoyable. All right, on to track five. <laughs> Thought I was a spaceman. Because we're not weird enough. This intro, though, I'll say it. I think it was flawless. Like, this intro oh, was just smooth. So, it was, it was so like, enjoyable. So, Steve, give us a little detail on this intro. This is one of my favorite things on the album, frankly. This, this sort of, like, crash cymbal roll, and it builds and builds to this very light but motion-filled, like, heartbeat sounding drum box now this this track is full of texture from here on in yeah. i mean the very first chord you hear is delivered to us by cellos they step in here with maybe doubled with like a light synth in the background but what i mostly hear is a slow drone of cellos uh, with that slight you know a parabola, a vo volume parabola that a cello would have. You know, it builds to that little peak and then slowly decays. Slow attack, slow decay, and it gives us this, this very warm C major 7. And over this, we're joined by, like, spurts of light acoustic guitars, just drenched in, in echo and in reverb, almost more in echo, though. They they step in, and then they there's a few little, you know, follow-ups before they finally decay. In addition to that... It, 
a lot of times it's not just an acoustic guitar strum. It's more of the steel string slides. You feel like the fingers sliding up the steel strings, you know, from fret to fret. And they swoop in from afar. They're not born out of the phrase. Again, that's a separate track. There's the acoustic guitars that sort of step in a lot more cleanly and they echo themselves, but then so do these like steel string slides. They're they're added in post-production. But there's lots of overlap here. And this is a much more delicate and, and expertly composed uh, example of, of post-production sound effects than we had earlier on. Here I don't detect this as clutter. This is this is the setting. Like this is everything. This is uh, not just the setting, but it's 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 the um, it's the place he wants us to live in. It's a it's sort of a drift, which I like. I like not having a concrete area. It's a setting, but it's a very expansive setting. This, when you start coupling it with the very the the great range of his vocal work and the pacing, the lovely great pacing he's doing in his vocals, really puts me in the zone of. Well, the spaceman he thought he was. Well, also about his vocals, he does the radio voice again, but because of the echo filter he has on it, it gives it a very spacey feel, like singing in a helmet. or a little, just A singing. little on the nose, but I'm okay with it being so on the nose because it fits. It fits perfectly it with what to he's the doing. Set. It adds to the setting, and it really reels you in. And but also what I really funny, love... Well, the only thing I have to curb that there is that I really don't get a space vibe here. I mean, title Not, aside, frankly, this is really back to that almost beachside environment but nowhere near as generic this is like i almost felt like i was on the shores of greece or something like that and, and that's why it's not quite space it's more a drift it's more a distance from things for me well, it's, it's also more the of warmth the, of everything the yeah. fact that he invoked a cello and also that when the acoustic guitar uh and this includes both those uh, steel string slides and when it's just strumming cleanly it sounds very spanish influenced more straight up this time again like we had a uh, spanish influenced bass earlier well now obviously you know you gotta reel it back with the guitar um, it was absolutely beautiful. I wanted him to stay here so bad I did. And he didn't, and it was a very natural <laughs> progression of what he goes into. This is the biggest, I don't know if it's a complaint or not, because where the song does end up going, when it starts adding in sort of the shakerish noises, and then sort of the extra add-on tones, and then the extra drum work and everything like that, these work as individual add-ons and build-up pieces, but I don't think it's adding to the setting itself. This is a pure pit, uh, place where he's composing it, but it's cluttering it at the same time. Well, there was certainly some stepwise motion here. Like, uh, for instance, when he enters, there's a few verses we get of this before we have anything even close to like a, a, a chorus. Um, he steps in with, you know, a few little changes just to like modify the existing material. The drum box that was there since the very, very beginning, which was very, very light. Again, it's just like a, a slight little just really keeps the rhythm going that's that's all it is but it it sort of changes itself a little bit it either starts to warm up or maybe it's an added effect for the for the spanish guitar or it starts to sound like it's being a little bit muffled but it's just like a spotlight shift that occurs here and that was a, a development in texture that I, I really appreciated it's really the the ultimate shift that i thought to be kind of like an artistic screw you but granted of course in this case i'm not you know i still think it was a it was a great development I think as far as the music was concerned, but I think that it was a little bit, it, it robbed me of the potential of the setting, which was one of our strongest yet. 
I want to talk and touch on the vocals a bit because besides feeling spacey, what I really like is the way he delivers the lyrics here. The Especially pacing, yeah. The pacing of the verses that Steve, Steve was mentioning the verses before, he inserts pauses, and I talk up pauses all the time when we have them on an album, but here really he does take his time with each line, and it really adds an impact to the delivery, which I enjoy. I agree. And this stays throughout the whole song, but... When you're going from this sort of drifting area that I'm loving to a, a, a sort of a movement-oriented piece, and then towards the end to really just becoming not quite frantic, but just full of a lot of things going on, it, it definitely ends up being, well, I see that he was trying to progress, and he did progress from one to the next to the next, but I miss that starting point. I miss home. I miss that first thing we were dealing with. It, it felt like it was sort of ripped from what it once was. I'm not going to even get, come close to use the word like, you know, a divorced section. Again, it's still expert composition. But it just feels broader and more busier. Again, the same concept, just like putting stuff in the way. It, it almost feels like an antithesis to what started. And really, we're still just kind of like walking through the verses. But, you know, he tacks on. The drums are so much heavier. And I just... It, it supplants that texture, and I just wasn't digging it. I, I realize that here I'm in, like, full-on... I'm, I'm in my critic's pants, essentially. Like, I think it was a great track, but now it's just a matter of choice, matter of direction. It's like sort of learning to love a character, and then there's that scene where they do something out of character, and you're just like, why? I'm not going to stop reading the book. It's just, you know... This is just cannon fodder for my complaining in, in, in my book club. Not that I have a book club. You definitely have a book club. No, I, you know I, I what? We should have don't. a book club. I'll, I'll join your book club. Okay, I read a lot cool. of books. Okay, cool. Um, I don't read as much as I should, but I imagine it's something like that. I think that's a close analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good uh, jumping off point to the next track. So we go from here to I Broadcast, which is number six from the get. And I know that you guys are going to disagree with me a little bit. Even though there was safety in moments of this track, I think overall it was quirky and fun. I did really enjoy it. I never really disliked it. However, it it starts out doing something really interesting structurally and then goes really safe really fast. We got another new idea here. I love it. He keeps introducing new quirky ideas. This one, another one of his weird tones and combinations and melody work that he's going on. I would describe it as a little flying lotusy. That's okay. That's okay. But what's not okay for this song is when the, quote, band, the guitar, the drums, the bass, the sort of stuff that you get with a natural, on-the-stage sort of band work, the classic style, that's always safe. He keeps going back to the home bass where he knows how to make his guitar. They know how to make their drums. I don't want that. I want that lotus, that flying lotus. For all that I'm scared of flying lotus, I kind of enjoyed it. For reference, uh, flying lotus is um, more of an electronica artist uh, that we reviewed in, in two separate podcasts. One in episode uh, 19, that was my pick. It was a very early episode, and, and uh, you know, it was a it was a mixed review, certainly. Um, also, the only one that John wasn't was absent for. Uh, and then we reviewed again at the behest of Tony Catalano, our, our writer in. Uh, Fairly recently, actually, episode 131. Um, and there's a lot to be had in Flying Lotus's work. I mean, he's the guy that really sits almost completely in, in electronica. But, of course, Damon Auburn has that side of him. He usually doesn't sit there entirely. I mean, there's a lot that goes on in, in with, with Damon Auburn. But at the same time, when he attempts doing that, I kind of want more of it. And I don't, like... 
you gotta believe in your project. You gotta at least stick with one thing, or at least go off the natural development of it. And I felt like, I feel a little bit repetitive in saying this, because we've had this several times in the album before. Again, I want to stress, I don't think that these sections are, are divorced in any way. But the be very beginning here, it... it it strikes me as like very this dissonant instrumental. It's it's so dissonant. I just I don't know. I wanted more of it. That's about all I could say for it. I love the synth overlaps. I love these like little pitch bends in between, um, and then suddenly we just go a wall into a much more live style. Uh, oh, to the beginning, a more live style like drum and guitar riff. Again, it's this this class of texture um, that could sound natural to a lot of people, but to me, it, it feels like a choice to abandon exploration. John said earlier in her, uh, before, while we were listening, he was like, it sounds weird, 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 safe. Weird, 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 safe. And that's essentially exactly how I feel with this. I mean, it's not that it's not matched up, it's not that it doesn't feel like a development, but it's not exploratory. It's almost... I, I made another metaphor. It's akin to taking a, like a classic rock song, something that is iconic from the 60s or 70s, running it through an 8-bit player, and then putting the two parts together. Yeah, when you 8-bit smoke on the water, you recognize it. When you really go tonal, you recognize it. But the two pieces never should meet. Not the original, plus this weird amalgamation. You don't... Yeah, there's a melody. It's the same song, but it's two halves of a very different idea. At the same point, I will say that the chorus is more matched uh, in some sense with things that were earlier on the album. Uh, it's it's ridiculously punk, more punk than earlier uh, examples to that effect. It's, it's, again, it's not that it doesn't really... It's still skillful. It's still, still well skillful. put together, but yeah. I want him to stay at that fun, kitschy end. I think, though, as a whole, and while I don't disagree with the points you're making, again, like I said in the beginning, I enjoyed the song. However, there isn't a ton of depth to it. Overall, it just doesn't really go anywhere except in these two distinct places, and it does feel a little repetitive. It didn't stop my enjoyment of it, but I can see where you guys are coming from. It's, it's kind of like peeking behind some shrubs, and you, you see El Dorado, and then... All of a sudden, you just decide, no, let's let's not go. Let's just play in this clearing over here, which is very, very boring. Or this playground that's right behind us. But there's El Dorado, but, but we're going to play over here. Well, that's a practical choice because there's space over here and it's a playground. And you don't know what's in El Dorado. Who knows? Maybe it's scary. Makes sense, but it makes it for a pretty lame journal entry. <laughs> okay. Um, the next track is probably my favorite track on the album. Um, track seven, My Terracotta Heart. Which, I like the imagery just because terracotta, I think of a terracotta pot and like a clay pot. And I don't know, like a heart is fragile like a yeah, clay pot. Yeah, get in. Combination. It's, it's a pretty thing. The whole overall <laughs> song has the strong... This is one of the str strongest emotional tracks on the record. It's got a sweet sadness from the start. And it's got this synth backing that, that comes in right away. It, it's really mellow and it really kind of eases you into this kind of lull of... Of sweet kind of it's it's jumberness. Nah, I would almost sweet say kind of sweetery. No, sultry, almost sultry. It's not quite That's not there. sweet at all. Yeah, I don't think it was sultry. No, no, no. It had a little bit of attitude to it. I loved it. It was smooth. Once again, he does smooth uh, Teflon smooth. Well, it's in the drums here. I mean, it's really just like this clapping sound. Uh, maybe a couple other beat work in the background. Maybe a tambourine. Um, but the the riff itself is is sort of provided by almost more keyboard sounding guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and then there's I think an additional comping instrument, uh, or actually an additional comping guitar that you would hear in the right ear. Uh, but yeah, the vocals are back to its more smooth crooning style. It's not punk anymore. Um, and the most epic part of this song, the bass. Once again, it's talking, walking and talking, going up and down. It's uh, it's my favorite part of the song. I really well, like when it walks and talks. I love because he doesn't just make it walk. He doesn't just play around with it. He uses it to actually show things. Well, to really bring it to a forefront. In the verses here, it's used more for accents. And frankly, at that point, it really wasn't the most interesting thing to me. Instead, there were these uh, strings that would step in. Mm-hmm. That struck me as more like synth strings. But they, they were interruptions. And this is kind of like what he did earlier in the album. These these oddball interruptions that step in at very odd times, like in this case, like on the on the two and, you know, halfway through the second beat, all of a sudden they just they step in and then they leave. They leave at an odd time too, like the, the four and or something like that. And it's 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 weird to have such a, a very grand and, and and you know, dare I say, epic uh flourish. Just, you know, popping in to say hi and then leaving like normal like i appreciate that frankly i appreciate that he's sort of playing around with expectation it gives an interesting structure i also want to focus on the lyrics for a moment because i really enjoy the chorus of this song or not chorus but like i guess the i guess it's the chorus. it's hard to tell it's sort of like home base um i'm running out of heart today i'm running out of open road to you when i knew when i know you are emoting you're dazed is something broke inside you? Because at the moment, I'm lost in feeling that I don't know if I'm losing you again. And there's um, there's actually an answer to that later on, which I find even more interesting. The fact that he just plays around with the tense instead of running out of heart. I was running out of heart that day. Yeah. I was running out of open road to you. And I know I was emoted. I was dazed. All of a sudden, everything is past tense, and he's convincing himself of this stronger. I, yeah, I pretty much love everything he's doing lyrically here. Um, and also, this does seem like the kind of track that's just a little bit more consistent than a lot of the other tracks that we've cited lately. There really is no section that I don't, I feel, you know, uh, that I feel is, is, is unfulfilled in a way. Yeah. It just feels like a solid track and everything is linked together and, and it feels like he, he delivered upon his promises in a sense. The, pro- um, the, the progress of this track is very much in line with what we expected, but the expectations were met in a good way. And, and it, it, it takes its time. That's the other thing. It doesn't just jump into any one of these specific elements. It doesn't really... It doesn't try to speed through it. It doesn't try to get to the culmination too quickly. It's a track that really just builds over the whole piece, as opposed to sectionally. And also, just to harken back to the bass, which you mentioned earlier. My I lovely, mean, lovely bass. And the chorus is really where it steps out, and that's where it's strongest. Um, it, it seems a lot more free-forming at this point, and it's, uh, it's, it's an independent character there. I, I really enjoyed that. And also, there's some little harkings back to earlier in the album. I noticed there was a transition here where he brings back in the sirens that were there in like the 10-second introduction. Uh, to the first track, and yeah. I don't know, there's just this connectivity that I feel like uh, is being renewed at this point. I also really like the way the track winds down. It doesn't, you know, st- sharp, it's not a sharp ending or a, a curveball transition. It's just it winds down to a vocal outro that kind of just culminates, and it really uh, bookends the the em- emotiveness in this track. I'll even admit that the um, 
the electric guitar was not just there, it actually was strong as both a comping instrument and a solo instrument. Um, if I had any uh, critiques, I would just say that there seems to be a lot more devotion in the chorus. Uh, I really, really adore that whole part. I'm running out of heart today. There's, d there's just deliberation with that section. Strong lyrics and strong delivery, for sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, so let's go to track eight. There are too many of us. So this is the single. This is the first track I heard from the record before I listened to the whole thing. Um, it has a music video on YouTube that's kind of stripped down, just a performance video with some interesting visual aesthetics for the framing. Nothing really worth mentioning beyond that. As plain as I can see, it's a social statement. Yeah, this is a Muse track, sort of. <laughs> Muse track only in the way that Muse tended to have lots of social statements, and their album, The Second Law, which we reviewed as early as episode 16, was, was full of them. The, the thing I about this it. song that I really like is from the moment it starts, the instrumentation breeds drama. It's definitely a social statement song, and the structure of the music gives you that feel. The marching style was... Well, you take that. You add in the radio, or in this case, it came off more as like a megaphone vocal work. It's safe putting these two things together, especially when you deliver a message type of a song. It's not something I kind of was expecting from Blur. Not because it's unheard of, but this felt a little bit cliche because he's just taking, well, very familiar elements and putting them together to do something I've been listening to almost my whole life. You know social statement tracks, and yeah. here's the thing, I, I, I have a tendency to avoid them in most cases. Nevertheless, I was a little more defensive of this track, um, first of all because it was really one of a kind on this album, and it, it, I think that that, that concept... Um, Obviously, it's not beat around the concept. There are too many of us. I don't think you can be more on, on the nose than that. Frankly, you barely even need to, to read the lyrics to, to, to get to the bottom of that statement. Um, it's really just... I appreciate the irony here, you know, with the military drum pattern, but then what presides over that is almost more interesting. The strings step in here and kind of add this, again, I hate to say it, but faux-like epic overlier to this track. It, they, they bow on the beat, like on the beat every beat, and they sound almost like a larger ensemble stepping in here to, to evoke the theme. But it, it sounds, again, a little bit fake, could be synth strings. Um, or maybe the raw sound was just like cut back in post. Still, it fits with this style. Uh, frankly, I was intrigued by those chord changes, even though it is just the you know a four chord uh, four chord song. They're very beautiful, very enticing chords. The slight little dissonances that make you think. I heard uh, more of an E sus six. Uh, followed by a G major, followed by a B minor seven. That was a really nice mo motion. Also back up. Um, to the E minor 7, and then to A minor 9th, that was very beautiful, and then on to B minor 7. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciated all of this. I think that it was it, it was a really nice round to keep the song going. It made everything, it made the point seem pivotal. And that's the most important thing, is when you can actually convey um, any kind of social statement in such a way that you feel it's a little bit imperative. Well, how much more imperative can you get than there are too many of us? That's plain to see. We all believe in praying for our immortality. We pose this question to our children that calls them all to stray and live in tiny houses of the same mistakes we make. So, you know, 
in short, the concept that we really do nothing to stop the inevitability of there being an overpopulation problem on this planet. Or what any other mistake. That's, what that's do you friggin' do? Okay, I get it. it it's yeah. an old statement. Everybody knows that it's going to be a problem. And frankly, I'm more of an optimist. I'm a cynic and everything else. But I'm more of an optimist when it comes to uh, the direction of our society. I actually do think that we will overcome these problems if we apply ourselves. Nevertheless, it's still a pointed idea. But my big issue is it's predictable. This song in and of itself, for me, I know when he's going to go into a next section and introduce these elements. Where's the chaos from before? Where's the off-tempo, off-key? Yeah, but that's what I was really liking with this album. I'm missing it here. See, but I feel like taking a step back here from it and creating something that's a solid single that's a little bit predictable but still within a strong and well ma- uh, manicured structure really adds a relatability to the track. I also but think it draws away from the art, from the more esoteric nature he was uh, building throughout this album. It draws away from the album as a whole because well a lot of the iconic elements that we're looking for that well I was looking for that I would come to expect in this album are gone. Well, see, I think you're overlooking the fact that there's a little bit of comedy that's in here also. In in just the the, the gall that he would have to, to title a track, there are too many of us. It reminds me of a, of a Bill Burr joke, obviously the comedian who had a whole bit on the concept that, you know, in a democracy, no one has the balls to elect a president that would just say in his... Uh, in his running and in his speeches, you know, trying to get the position, uh, sorry, 80% of you got to go. No one's going to say that, you know? But yet he's saying it here, and it almost made me think of uh, an older example to the, that effect, uh, one of the most popular cases of satire, and that was Jonathan Swift's A Modest Proposal, which was the, based around the concept that, well, you know, well, how are we going to solve um, poverty and overpopulation over there in, in, in Ireland? Well... We should eat children. They have a lot of protein. And it was just, you know, a whole statement on that. And he elaborates. You think it's going to be like a quick quip? No, it's its entire essay on the subject. Taken very self-serious, but clearly not. And I think that that's a little bit of the idea here. Um, And I think that there's like a contrast between like this this imperative, you know, string swoop. He hasn't done anything like this in the album. Why should he choose the time to do it now? I think there's just a slight little bit of comedy there. I believe he's serious about the concept, but I think you're meant to take it in stride. Hence, this is a social statement song that I could kind of just, I can relate to in a way and enjoy. And I'm not saying I dislike this song. I like the song as a whole. I like every little thing he does in here. But for me, nothing was quite great. Was even really quite that good. I think there it are moments where it gets of... better. Like, for instance, there's moments uh, in the third verse here where it even seems to get more impe- imperative. On it top goes from of... marching to a galloping kind of exactly. Stride. Um, yeah, and I had less I like of a problem it. with the build here too. Normally, I would think, oh, well, he's just sort of like you know tacking it on, trying to reach it to a plateau. But I, I didn't feel like this was robbing the track of anything because it never felt mystical to me from the outset just like earlier examples in this album instead this song had a statement from the get-go it was one thing from the start and so i figured yeah all right go ahead grow just enhance do your rock thing that's what social statement rock social statement songs do at least it enhances the element okay i mean (laughs) i can't disagree with with where you're sitting with it john or I can disagree with it. I can understand it, though. I just feel like the militant sound and well, the Well, no, the song itself was good. It really was good. I like it. I just have to point out the flaw as a part of the album, I just, as I see it. 
I believe there is just more cleverness uh, than you're giving it for the fact that the music is is serving to take the role of the sarcasm that perhaps Jonathan Swift had used in his in his uh, quips, and which also does I feel does tether it to the record. Also, the next track, also just in title alone, kind of adds a little bit of comedy to the album. So the next track is called Ghost Ship. What do you think of a ghost ship? You think of the really terrible horror movie? Or... No, I don't. I think of no. Classic... That's exactly. I think of classic pirate ship tales. So you no, think, Matt called it. I think of that horror movie. You think you think of really like haunted, horror. disturbing things. What do we get? An island beachy cruise kind of sound. So clearly, that. here's the, the gag. The, the lyrics reflect the title, and they are depressing. But the structure of the song is the happy-go-lucky, islandy kind of vacationy groove. And I think that alone, that dichotomy from the title to the music, a little on the nose, but I think it's funny. Um. My comments on this track are somewhat thinner, especially considering my overly elaborate defense of the previous. I think that the bass here uh, drives the groove, and that's the best part. The drum, though, is utilitarian. Um, the drums themselves are utilitarian, and then the guitars kind of remind me of a watered-down cake. I mean, And I like cake, but, you know, you take too much out of it. But wet cake is disgusting. Yeah, it, yeah you have a mushy cake. Well, that's, that's what I have here. With oh, I thought, I thought we meant like a, a zip drive that got Soggy. wet you can't use anymore or something like that. Because it's cake, so they would have been there in the zip drive. Anyway, back on topic. It's everything a nice cruise groove song would be. But I love the the dissonance between that and the actual content of the lyrics. Yeah. Because even the vocals match that groovy sure. cruise song. But... <clears throat> I remember flashbacks lighting up magic waves. Eight o'clock, saloon emptiness. Handle it. The wide old mi- image I had to view 11 seconds ago. I didn't say MG, so you will never know. But then it goes with, I got away for a little while, but then it came back much harder. The way he delivers that line, it's almost, I almost would say it's it's getting away from an addiction and going back to it. It's a little creepy, but if you're not listening to the words... It still is a nice, safe song. Yeah. I also felt like as of the chorus, and from there to the end of the song, actually for successive verses, he picked up his own register. He like went up an octave or something. He's not yeah. quite in falsetto, but he's clearly up there. And it actually kind of helped out the song a little bit. He, he sticks with that register just for the rest of the song, and I thought that was an interesting choice. It kind of ramps up the energy of this, because he's got a lot of soul in his upper register. And also, I think that it's unavoidable that the song did overall kind of have a simple and predictive uh, direction. But again, I think it's these other elements that made it enjoyable for me and kind of added to the track. The music itself is very jam-like, very yeah. unoffensive. And, um, uh, yeah, that's better. <laughs> and frankly, the only other part of this that I really liked was that chromatic shift like right between certain uh, phrases. Uh, specifically right when he says, um, right race, and also uh, hold home, come, it's the last ride. So right there, home come. It's the last ride boarding here tonight out in the bay. I need a line to new shiner right race. And right there it's just this, I love this this, this little chord transition. It just uses this little passing note, uh, passing chord in this case, and it's uh, it was astute um, minute as it may be. Fair enough. Astute though minute. Um, also something odd to note um, that I only noticed because I was staring at Spotify as we listened to the record. For whatever reason, there's about 9 to 10 seconds of silence at the end of the track. The song ends, there's silence, and then the next song begins. It could be a production error. 
However, I feel like it's not. I'm sure there's an intention behind it, Well, so I feel like it's worth mentioning at least. Living out a body here, what can I do? It's up to the dock every day to join here with you. I had to get away for a little while, but then it came back much harder. It's a bit of an outer body experience here, perhaps yeah. even hinting at death itself. So maybe that's what the silence is supposed to represent. It is that's ghost clever. shit. It is ghost shit. I gotta admit, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, scared with the, um, it's up to the dock every day to join here with you. Like, his health is hinging on, you know, some doctor's advice. I, again, that may be reading too closely into it, but I, I don't know. Well, it could be a double a entendre. Dock itself it, could be the dock of the ship that as too. well. And uh, the fact that he has to come into the bay every day to meet up with her, sort of like a... You know, lighthouse, foghorn, metaphor thing going on there. You mean the ship ship's doctor? No, the, the the dock itself. She has to come. No, back but to it's the it's dock. not spelt like that. Though. Well, it may be it's spelt like, like that. We can't see the words coming out of his D-O-C. mouth. D O C. It might be D O C K. Or maybe A to Z or lyrics got it wrong. Hat. And then you're right. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. <laughs> From here we go to um, track ten, which is Pyongyang. Is that correct, Steve? Yes, that is correct. It's the capital of North Korea. For the um, it starts. The song starts with this kind of bell intro. I think was it a triangle or was it just like chimes? I couldn't really tell. I, I couldn't quite pin it down, but it was certainly haunting. Yeah, it was definitely some kind of chime, and this I think is related to the previous track, a connecting piece. This kind of haunting chime definitely links the tracks together. It builds into an oddly haunting kind of bizarro kind of sound with odd sound bites here before the bass kicks in. It's haunting for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, this very low, like almost inaudible synth that just, it's rumbling in the background. It's like a drone. Yeah, but it's its almost like the kind of drone uh, that like a stereo would make um, when it's not really playing anything. Like mm. it's just, like just that natural, you know, electric hum. But in addition to that, it steps in with these, I could only call them like really lazy guitar bends that step in here very sparsely. And with the tone that they have to them, it, it strikes me as very like 90s avant-garde metal if, if taken alone by itself. It's not really metal in context of everything else, but that's how they sound just independently. And then that's also complemented by these great little like bass pops. Again, bass is one of the best things about this album. I just love the way it reacts to everything. It's it's a, a, a thoroughly ero- reacting instrument. It's not just there. Um, but, you know, the the chord changes themselves are just very, very monotonous. Uh, but then again, if you want to do haunting right, it should probably be a little numbing. So we got weird. We got mystical, mythic, what have you. And we've got different from previous tracks. Immediately my mind went to do something with it. And we get to the more chorus-oriented music work. The chorus and, was not a plus. Oh my gosh. It fit. It was one of those places. It's melody. It's perfect. But like it earlier, fit. it's another yeah. generic safe shift. Um, the synth just starts holding in the background, and all of a sudden it just starts sounding this very, like, pop, warm, you know, the awkward guitar, like, almost ushers the verse back in, in, in an awkward fashion. That is to say, like, the, the lazy guitar bends just, like awkwardly bring the verse back in. It was actually the, the only transition on the album that I felt like it was a little bit poor. It's just structurally the whole song goes from the quirky, odd moments to something completely generic and expected, and we've seen that before. And Not it, completely. It's still good quality piecemeal. It's still good guitar work. Some of it, like the bass. Bass tends to be great throughout the album. I'm just getting tired of going from, ooh, 
great idea? Ooh, that's the same thing I heard 15 years ago. I I'm tired of this. Well, on the plus side, I believe this is the um, writings of a political prisoner. Oh? Yeah, it's, it's... I look down from my window to the island where I'm held. Listen while you're sleeping. Darkness is itself. Tomorrow I am disappearing, because the trees are amplified. Never-ending broadcasts to which I do not aspire. Kid the mausoleum has fallen, and the perfect avenues will seem empty without you, and the pink light that bathed the great leaders is fading. By the time your sun is rising there, out here it's turning blue. The silver rockets coming, and the cherry trees of Pyongyang, I'm leaving. Uh, so it sounds like or someone, rather, who, is someone who has locked or locked up decided to escape locked up in his mind, or I don't know. It's or someone it, locked up in Pyongyang, is what it sounds like. Well, well yeah. It, it's, it's, <laughs> it comes off with sort of like watching a death knell of the the great leader or whatever they call him, Kim yeah. Jong Un or Kim Jong Il, whatever it's based upon, or just the whole concept of what North Korea actually is. There is definitely a narrative here to this song. Kim Il -sung. It's interesting. It's, it's a, Kim, Kim Il Sung then. Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un. Well, it depends. I don't know. It doesn't really matter which one of them. They kind of have the same tyrannical government that's just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. But we're not a political discussion group. But we're a subtly music... different haircuts. Subtly. Subtly. It's almost like they grandfathered in the barber or something like that. But it's close yeah, enough. Yeah, wow. That yeah. barber's... Back to the <laughs> point at hand. This track overall, though, like I said... It's not bad. It's just... Uh, it, it's a nice story, but I don't know like what's going on it, otherwise. It just it's, seems a little out of left field a bit. Um, He's got statements. Yeah. I uh. love... I. It could have been a great story. If the chorus, the kid in the museum... Um, kid in the mausoleum part, not museum, had something going on there that was really maybe more dramatic, maybe something that would really point to what's going on there but nothing really comes off as drama i agree um unfortunately if we had problems with this song the next song is worse so for the first time on the entire album ong 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 track 11 this is the ubiquitously boring generic expected disappointed cliche filler track no no a little too much description right there <laughs> Or maybe not even enough, because we start off with La La La's. I mean, there's that. Like, what upsets me about this song is that every band has... Well, not every band. A lot of bands have gone the predictable route before. They'll dip into it for a song here, or do a filler there, whatever. But I just... This seems so out of characteristic of the album. The only reason I disagree with you about before, when you were saying the track 8 was uncharacteristic, is because they were at least making a statement. They were doing something. There, yeah, there was something there. This had no place on this record. It just felt completely out of place musically, vocally, structurally, and I've run out of things. Lyrically. <laughs> well, it's lyrically. lyrically. Yeah. Also, uh, in terms of placement, like, I mean, to, to think what it followed, I, I mean, as much as we may criticize the last track, actually, I think he was painting a very, very vivid picture. Yeah. Yes. Of, I mean, I thought there was Story a lot of... Story was great. Story was great. Story was great. There's a lot of beauty in there. I mean, just the concept of, of envisioning someone in that position. There's a lot to be said about North Korea and the fact that he even attempted so out of places it may be. I gotta hand it to him. And and the, the horror-filled style of it, I think, like... I don't know. I see myself as like the, the last day before I'm about to be executed, essentially. Yeah. Or again, I'm not sure whether it's, it's executed or about to about to escape. And then from this um, segue, Ong Ong, 
la 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 la. Like, it's just a lot of... I got a boat on a sunny day to get out of this town because the tarmac was melting and the people seemed to sway stuck in the underground. Um, I mean, I this could be the escape song that's paired up with the previous track, but I just feel like... Like he arrived? Well, I mean, it could be that he got out. I mean, but also, I feel like... Well, track also, 10... I don't know whether I'm leaving means escape or whether uh, he got killed. Oh, that could be it, too. This could be like a heaven fantasy, which is why it's so cheery and predictable and, and well, bright. Uh, I would just say, well, to sum the whole thing up... it could be argued up, that even like a, a, a citizen in North Korea is a political prisoner. <laughs> to sum it all up, it's just a nice, easygoing track. And yeah. it, in this case, I'm not even... Uh, all the ideas that I said earlier, that it was still well put together. There were still great bass, guitar, drums when I didn't really want them. They were still good. Yeah. No, not right here. This one feels a little phoned in. There's really nothing going on. I'm I'm being drawn to. I just feel like track 10 would have been better served having track 12 follow it. Track 11 just doesn't add or take away anything. It's just kind of there. It's the ultimate definition of filler. If you can take the track out or leave it and nothing changes, I mean, that's the problem. Well, the lyrics may hint at like certain other things. The music doesn't match it in the slightest. Frankly, this is a uh, grab your brother, sing kumbaya kind of track. Uh... It's just everybody sing along, you know. It's the lots of oohs, lots of na nas, lots of ahs, lots of la la las, and I don't know. I, the whole it, it's really hard to even peer into the the content here. If you're a land of the social media of the social and media feed, I want to be with you on an isle of rain clouds and verdant seas. I will be there with you. It's I don't know. Could be a delusion, but based on the previous narrative. But there's I don't enough, know. Like there's, there's not enough in this album so far for me to really start considering these things. Yeah, you know, this in, wasn't in a broad. concept album, so yeah, going from track to track, trying to find a concept there seems odd. Well, I have I'm not saying theory. there aren't like. Theory. Yeah, there's I have a theory going on here. Had, uh, you want to say it now, you might as well go for it. Okay, well, before we go into the final track, Mirrorball, this is sort of, an, from the way I'm viewing this album, it's coming off to me as a identity crisis. There's a lot going on here, to, uh, spoken from the first-person point of view, that seems to be uh, a character being pulled left, right, center, doesn't know what they're doing, having to deal with both how they view themselves and how they view the relationships. There's a lot going on for that identity crisis going on here. There does seem to be a lot of clash between innocence on this album and also uh, and also just the scary other side of the tracks. Um, and he pursues that through a, a quite diverse range of avenues. And track 12 is also diverse. As John said, the name is Mirrorball. This we get a slow-trotting... Western-esque kind of song. This is definitely something we've seen before. Steve makes an interesting point. We see it a lot. It might not be because it's popular in modern music and mostly just the bands we choose. It's popular with them. It's not by our choice. It's, but, but that's... But there's usually one of these tracks like on, on uh, albums every so often. Yeah, just they, have, they like Western. I don't know. I guess everything comes back every once in a while and there's... Everyone wants to do this track in the, in the vein of like a Clint Eastwood... Uh, narrative so to speak and so you know in we go with that western style i don't even know if it could be called quintessentially like western style music i don't kind even of like know what spaghetti to call western it. maybe sure and the weird part is this spaghetti western sort of piece i think is talking about an mmorpg or something similar because there's a couple of oddball references in the lyrics with lines like i remember the flying dragons too i was there with you so before you log out, hold close to me, hold close to me. And then, I think I found you in the temple square under the wishing tree. 
a lot of these references are just like to a video game of some kind. Yeah, like, like it's weird to almost have like this. an illusion. And then uh, once again, speaking to my identity crisis theory, the fact that this person is so honed in on to go and say, "I cr- so I cried my eyes out, hold close to me, hold close to me," and to end, "I cried my eyes out, hold close to me," over and over again. It's sort of like he's a little bit too much investment in in this virtual world that he's delved into. He's a little bit too deep into there and lost the person he was playing with. I don't know. It's weird. The identity crisis theory is not that unfounded. I mean, something I wanted to talk about after this that I was kind of mulling on as we talked about it is Damon Albarn could be having an identity crisis considering he's in three now very specific projects, his own solo one, Blur, and The Gorillas. This album could reflect that identity crisis he's been going through and is it hard to keep your own personal identity when you're a multiple band man? Talk about the solo band man, the solo man band, but the multiple band man could be an identity issue. Anyway, I think that that's uh, But not- of course he brings that in with like social issues. So, you know, I mean, there's a line between uh, p- personal ongoings and what's happening in society. Well, sure. I- there are too many of us... Yeah, a little bit of an oddball, but it's also from the point of view of someone on a pulpit kind of a thing going on there. So it's still it's centered them dealing around the with person. something. It's still centered around, yeah. It's still a very much a first-person point of view or an inclusive multiple people, but still first-person point of view. First-person point of view, but it's, a lot of it is external and a lot of it is internal. And we and our, and there's a semantics to be argued there, but anyway. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I do want to mention, of course, though, that this track does wind down the album, which, you know, I mean, we've had plenty of albums do it do that. But what I do like is that the string work in here, like in other tracks before, it was very nice. I think it adds to the track. It kind of solidified that Western feel and kind of wrapped up the whole album, conclusion-wise, pretty neatly. Um, Sure. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I make no uh, pretense at hiding the fact that this is really not a great outro for me. Um, but yeah, of course, the double stop slides, when strings do that, I'm I'm always enlightened. Uh, and I think they were well done. Again, he's a great composer, what can I say? So who's going to start? Because this ain't going to be me. Well, it's not me, it's my pick. That's oh, how that Steve, works. Oh, Steve, thanks for volunteering. Sure. Glad I could help. Uh, all right. This is definitely the kind of album that I think, I, I'm sorry to say, I think it put a lot of its heavier material in the front. Musical material, that is. And I think actually, as you listen on, and especially if you're reading on along with it, or if you're really honing in the lyrics themselves, I think that the themes will start to reveal themselves to you later. That's usually the case with albums. Again, I think it's very, very rare that people listen to music and just sort of like, all right, yeah, I know the theme after like, first track and they're actively thinking about that as you go no instead it's just yeah come on enjoy the music in that case it's helpful that he stuck the more musically challenging stuff in the beginning or at least revealed all the types of things that he might do later unfortunately it seems like he he comes to do like lesser versions of them as the tracks go on it's like the soothing beach style stuff as we cited probably in over five tracks that's strong even as early as the second track. But, it, you know, you can't really put your finger on it and say, like, uh, I'm at the beach. You know, it's not that it's, it's not made for idiots. Instead, it's an environment that he created that we just develop impressions off of. Later on, it becomes far more in the nose. And it seems as if he's just like, nah, I'm going to live here now. 
Those are those tracks. And then there are the other tracks in which he broaches very experimental um, electronic work. I appreciate that. There's not too many of those. But again, he's a fluid composer. He knows how to link that with instruments that are a little bit more grounded, a little bit more acoustic. And I thought that was expertly done. I think in general, I find this to be a very unoffensive album. And I'm not saying that as... as, as um, as critically, I think, as a lot of people would use that word. I think this album is, if you want to be challenged by it, then listen in, and listen really closely. Then there are some challenging moments, but they're not all at once. And then there's also the, the fact that sometimes I feel like there's a, there's a split between, the as we cited many times, usually as a fault, the split between the safe and the split between the experimental. Um, even if you're not talking about specifics such as genre, if it's if it's just those two tiers, in uh, the same song, it seems in al- the same song is the key. In the same song, in many songs, it seems intentional to me, and that's why I'm 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 a little confused about that goal. And I don't I, I, the identity crisis would fit that, uh, but it's not like I need things spelled out for me here. But there's just there's not enough meat to go along with this. I feel like it's just impression after impression disguised by uh or rather under the guise of just you know it's a smooth listen and maybe that's really what he wants in the end if he has that many projects going on i have a feeling that maybe blur at this point is his his chance to just sort of like all right i'm gonna have fun uh because he really laid on a pretty thick social statement with his most recent solo album which was everyday robots and that was all about nature versus technology almost through and through this is vaguer and it's more about the music I just wish the music could could really speak for that as he goes. It just seems like that stuff was pushed to the front, and once you get the hang of it, once you get the gist of it, nah, that's pretty much it. He has plateaued. One of my favorite moments, as I'm sorry to say, was in that transition or, or bridge, as I see it, in the very, very first track, and then a couple of others. Certainly, um, there are too many of us, and certainly thought I was a spaceman. I mean, this is where he's at as far as texture is concerned, and that's what I'm all about with him. He's such a, a master at texture. I wish that was just the whole move. So I think this probably rests around this rests around a good album, but I think there's a cohesion that is just just missing a little bit. I'm going to put this at a 3.9. I'm in the same ballpark there's very little I can really add to what you said but the one thing I want to point out I like the stories that are going on here I don't think we read all the lyrics from all the songs we actually skipped a few songs but his vocal work is great and I don't think we can stress that enough his bass work is great and I don't think we can stress that enough Blur as a band does a lot of really quality things the story another quality aspect of here I like all the little elements that are going on here. Even the quote-unquote phoned-in aspects of some of the choruses that feel like, eh, I wish they'd gone further, but hey, it's still good. I still like it, but like it's not enough. There's nothing here that I really love. There's not a lot that I'm connecting with on a very evocative or emotional level. So I'm going to be a little bit harsher than Steve. It's a really, really good good album but that still is going to keep it shy of the four range so 375 uh, no 38 i'm going to break my own rule of doing quarters but 38 it's it's 
it's nearing, but it's really just not there for me. Okay. Uh, I think both of you are being a little overly harsh. Not really harsh. I think just a little overly harsh. A spec. And here's why for me. For reference, I rated his album, that is his solo album, I, I believe a 4.3. Yeah. Um, because there was cohesion in different elements. I rated that one a 4.4. Um, this record for me... First of all, I'm so excited to have a new Blur record, so let's put that out there. Now, As a fan, that's not a bad thing. Yeah. As a fan, I'm glad they're back from their 12-year gap of new music, and I'm excited to hope that they continue to make albums, that they don't break up again and they stay together. Um, I do want to clarify, there was a lot of he's thrown around. This is a four-person band, and though he's probably doing a lot of the mixing, Damon Albarn, he is only the guitarist and the singer. This is a full band. So he's not the end-all be-all as far as production. I'm sure there's input from the whole band. That said, there's only one song I really didn't love, and that was Ong Ong, which I didn't hate. I was just kind of meh about. But everything else I either enjoyed or loved. Emotionally, there are some gaps. Um, Not every track uh, rings with true emotion, but that's fine. You don't need that in every track. However... I will agree with Steve on the blanket statement that this does fall short of his solo record if we're comparing Damon Albarn's direct work. But this is also not Damon Albarn. This is a collective effort by Blur that I still think is a, the, a good direction. And even though the exploration of some of those tracks <coughs> fell short, I liked where it was going. I just wished it kept going. But I don't think this is closer to the average end. I don't. Because we've reviewed a lot of average pop, and this is bounds better. Except in very specific moments where it goes safe. But all in all, there's still a technique and a talent that is here. And that is honed. And that is specifically very much Damon. Um, And his band Blur. Like I, I just truly enjoy Blur, and I'm so grateful that they have a new record. I could go at length about the stuff that they've already mentioned, but they've already mentioned it. So I'm not going to mention it again. I will, however, say that I think that this does sit above a four, but not much. Because, again, his I loved, loved, loved his solo record so much more because it was something different. This did fall into some samey traps. So for me, it's a 4.1. Not quite a 4.25 or, or, or approaching that, but it's definitely above a four. I think that... Blur as a band have come a long way. This is definitely unique from their older stuff. It's definitely not a catchy, poppy song like Song 2 was. There is there is exploration, there is expanding, and he's maybe pulled in some of his solo stuff and Gorilla stuff to add to it, or this might have already existed within the band dynamic. But I like the way that Blur is gone based on this discography and within the frame of music. They're not a 90s band that sounds 90s anymore. There are moments, but they have grown beyond that. I'll only point out that because you uh, you made the point that, you know, this is Blur, this is not Damon Auburn, um, you had also, I think, made the point earlier that, well, it's, you had heard the Gorillaz influence in this based on what he's done with Gorillaz now having, you know, going back to Blur, well, you're bound to see his stuff stepping in here. Yeah. And that's why I just want to clarify what I said about, you know, texture being one of my favorite things about this it also goes back to it being some of the problem i don't think it can fix all of the content here i think that overwhelmingly we look overwhelmingly we look at that as the most positive thing 
the texture in this album and all the stuff that enters in. But from even earlier on, I noticed that there was that case of it being not clutter necessarily, but just putting stuff in the way to mask the content. And I feel like that's the main problem here. Instead of it being a, a fluid part of the composition, like it is in cases in this album, I think in general, the content was just a little bit scarce here. And, and no amount of, 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 of like, hey, look at this, and, and look at this. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that, that quite breaches the fourth territory to me. Still, there's a lot here. Um, the, the moments themselves, uh, also, the... the those moments, those those signature, you know, standoutish moments, were a little bit few and far between. I, I know he's got it. That's that's the only reason. I just I can't put it over the mark because I know he's got it as a musician. But like what I was hinting at before, I think it's really interesting that Damon going from band to band brings influences from each band to the others. I mean, obviously instrumentation, the core rock and roll instrumentation of the Gorillas is influenced by Blur. Blur's hip hop and synth related stuff is definitely influenced by the Gorillas. And also Damon's solo kind of is a mesh of both. I think that something that's interesting about an artist who's in multiple projects is there's bleed over. I feel like you, if you're learning and growing, you're not going to just keep those three elements in this case, specifically talking about him, but in general, you're not going to keep the specific elements separate. You're going to want that mix. You're going to want to show your influence and how you're growing right well it's a question of how much you can separate yourself if indeed your goal is to separate yourself from yourself uh this is a little different in uh as opposed to our discussion we had on on artists going solo which of course want to do that to you know explore what else they can do solo sure. but what about when you actually do set out to not just do what you do solo be that whatever you want it to be and then also whatever you want your band to be and perhaps your other band or your other duo project i mean a lot of times people artists do this in order to be as broad as possible because they know branding and they know that branding is important when people have identified your sound as whether it's your artist sound or or your band sound as a certain thing then to just make the discographical choice to release a new album and just say hey you know what well i'm a rock musician but i guess i want to do jazz right now right if that's under the same name people are going to get a little bit confused they're going to be like well this is not what i've been buying why did i buy this Granted, of course, now with previews, they can get this ahead of time, but it's still a little bit strange because, you know, building your brand is kind of important. There's a lot of stuff that attaches to it. There's image that attaches it. There's identity. There's the type of things that you're going to be mentioning, and it'll, it'll distract people from you, as strange as that sounds. Hence, you know, you can, if you can make that conscious shift to, say, pursue another genre, um, even if it's just like a minor genre shift or a minor style shift with somebody else, then that's a wise decision to make. But I guess your question is how well can they do it and how well is it typically done? And then there's the other way around. A lot of times a musician will leave or uh, parts of a band will break up and you're going to be, you're going to have somebody who's sees one band going one way and wants to do something completely different and wants to stay what it is. Or like three time rock and roll hall of fame inductee eric clapton he was doing the yardbirds everybody forgets he was in the yardbirds or people who should know he's in the yardbirds forget he then goes on to make cream and then he goes on to do his own solo career three times inducted three times for three different projects and each of them was very distinct cream was 
was more along the lines of, you know, White Room, Sunshine of Your Love, like the really hard-hitting rock and roll Clapton loved doing. Uh, while Yardbirds ended up being kind of a pop rock kind of a sound by the end of the career that Eric was in with it. And then when he does on his solo stuff, I mean, it's really very pared down, very much uh, a man and guitar kind of work orientation. Very three distinct ideas, but you always hear Clapton when you're looking for it. Right, but the, and that's similar to in the vein of Jack White, who we've had we've had his album on the podcast. White Stripes, Jack White, The Racketeurs, these are all bands that don't sound that different. They have differences, but he's definitely pulling his influence and what he's learned from band to band. The White Stripes being the most stripped down of all of them, it was the first band, and then as he built these other bands and careers, kind of brought those influences along for the ride. I think that the only fear I would have as an artist is if I make Blur sound too gorillas-y then is it really Blur anymore obviously you have those band members whereas the gorillas is all post-production all you know with with collaborations but it's all post-production Blur is a band band has influence and opinions and and, and stuff like that but as the front man he calls a lot of shots I'm sure probably I think that what's interesting about these artists and, and, and looking at it is it's more the idea of we talked about going solo so Rob Thomas went solo for Matchbox 20 but what about when Rob Thomas went back to Matchbox 20 and they released several records together again what was the difference what did he learn what did he bring back you know Rob Thomas' solo stuff was more pop oriented but Matchbox 20 has also kind of gone in a pop direction is that because he went solo and saw that the, the, the value of that the concept that, of course, you can't erase what you've learned. You can't unlearn something. So when you go back and say, all right, I'm going to reimmerse myself in this, it's, it's not exactly like going back through time. Instead, you're a, a, a new human being, really, or just a developed human being trying to revisit the same people, the same project. It's like trying to catch up with, a, with an old friend, and I mean like a really old friend, someone you haven't talked to in like 10 years, and expecting it to be exactly the same. If you're lucky, if you had a good dynamic, maybe it will be. But I think more often not, it's it's going to be like, so we don't really know each other anymore, do we? Well, a great example of that is Led Zeppelin ever since 1980 when uh, Jimmy Page passed away. Dissolved, fell apart, but every once in a while doing a one-off show. It's still not the same Jimmy Page. And I bring that up because he was also a Yardbird. And if you want to look at Yardbird's Led Zeppelin, another big difference between the actual music being produced. Jimmy Page, another one of those guys that kind of crossed, not genre, but subgenres, kind of working within the same realm. And another one of those that even growing up, I never knew there was the same guy playing instruments, the same guy singing in a lot of these crossover bands. It was very popular during the 70s. You don't see it so much anymore. Late 60s, early 70s, people aren't borrowing from one another not just sounds, but musicians. Not 100% true anymore. As is our friend, or my favorite musician, one of anyway, Dave Grohl, who is in bajillions of bands at this point. Let's just use a fake number, because why not? He is in a ton of bands. But the interesting thing is, there is that crossover, because the lead singer of Queens of the Stone Age is in them Crooked Vultures with him. Also, um, like, it's one of those things where Dave Grohl jumps from band to band or will sit in on projects like he's the drummer for Queens of the Stone Age on most of their studio records, but doesn't go on tour with them. There's crossover in the, the modern rock scene, just not as apparent as it was then. But also, I feel like Dave Grohl is an artist who has pretty much 
honed a specific sound and has not changed that much from band to band. He is a great drummer, a great well, guitarist, a great singer. It's his specific sound, but the band changes it. Right. That's the whole thing. And that's what's really great because Grohl is a, an amazing musician. It's interesting hearing his specific style used in different subgenres and genres of music and even styles of, you know, just a band from album to album really does adapt. Yeah. It's, I, it's fun because for him, it's sort of like a flip for me. I can identify him. I can hear him from Nirvana onward. I can hear where he is. But it's interesting really seeing him expand. Well, and I guess also as an artist, he's a unique case because he doesn't have specific genres that make his influences stand out. His sound, his overall Dave Grohl sound, is influenced by everything he's learned. And he's made it a sound. He's He's got that Dave Grohl sound. And it's not like, whereas Alburn has got a little bit of hip-hop, a little bit of punk, a little bit of rock and roll. Dave Grohl is uniquely Dave Grohl in these bands, adding to with his specific pinpoint genre. Well, what it fusion. sounds like is also as a result of you know, Nine Inch Nails essentially being him anyway. Yeah. It's just like all he did was just disguise his name. And really, there's there's no need to disguise at that point. If you've done solo work and you're just being a soloist in other instances, especially if people just identify your sound as your sound, then that's almost the exception to the rule. Or, or, rather, or rather, that's not the point that I think we're trying to get at. That's a case where an artist just delivers to the table what he is asked to deliver. Yeah. Um... That's that's a, a, a sort of stronger cult of personality, I think. Um, I think really the question here is, is, is there a, a, a drive, I think, to separate yourself from yourself? As you said at the outset, like, change your personality depending upon who else you're with. Because a lot of people are not born with, like, this one style or this one set of tastes. Um, yeah, if you know an artist well enough, you can perhaps keen, keenly seep into it and be like, all right, that's you. Dave Grohl seems to be that case. But I think a lot of artists have separate styles. Even just two weeks ago, we had the case of Steve Wilson, who was more of a, um, you know, he's a prog guy, but as we said, prog is a form. Prog is not really a genre, per se. There was jazz in there. There were lots of other things. Um, and he had been a jazz artist for a while. He took his opportunity as a soloist to go do that. But then his, you know, Porcupine Tree was very prog, also tended to get very metal in their middle period. And it's just like, I feel like he works with so many people. And also, you know, sometimes just going doing shows with different artists will enhance your sounds. There are certain people that just as frontmen, as masterminds, they're constantly looking for ways to grow their sound. Hence, whenever they do another project, or even just another album, they just see it as an opportunity to be like, all right, I'm going to do something different because they purposefully don't want to be identified as, ah, that Steve Wilson sound. Which I think is fair. And ultimately, there's no right or wrong answer. I think it's just how, how you do it. And we've li we've mentioned many examples of how you can do it differently. Um, but ultimately, if you're going either going back to a band that you left to create your own sound and then reform as a group, or just continuing to change your own solo sound, growth is important. Ultimately, this whole conversation bases around growth and learning. You are never done learning or evolving. If you are, then why make music? And I think that all of these things that people grasp at to add to their repertoire, as they say, 
really will only help but educate and expand your horizons. And then, of course, there's also the fact that a lot of times I think it's done unconsciously. I mean, I, I realize that there are definitely artists that make a, a concerted effort as they hop from project to project to immerse themselves in that project. And I give them a lot of credit, but sometimes it's just a networking tool. It's really just a matter to say, all right, well, I would like to work with you guys for a while, but I'm still going to continue being me. I'm not going to, like, completely adapt my mind for the project. I'm just going to do what I think feels right for this project or reacting to whatever you're doing as another musician. In that case, I would say like, well, hopping from project to project is really something, or the brand building, the brand idea is really more of a fan imposition. We identify them as something, whereas they were just trying to work with other people. And it was just a networking tool so that they could stay as broad as possible. But then it's, it, identity is all in our heads, you know. It's just it's just a circumstance and sequence of events stacked on top of each other that you can't really predict, just like you don't know who you're going to meet the next day. Well, ultimately, you can't tell someone who, what their identity is. They tell you. Yeah, well, yes. Ultimately. But yet, literature has... We incessantly try to define it. Yeah. Um, even on this podcast, we've fallen into that trap. That's true. That's definitely true. All right, I think there's a good point for us to move on to our email of the week. Or comment of the week. That's right, folks. We do not have a spam. We actually had a uh, fan mail this week, um, which has an important relation to the episode it is remarked on. That's right. This was just uh, three weeks ago that we reviewed um, uh, Wild Nothing's album, uh, Nocturne, which was brought to us by Devin Jackson Mullen, who we had a very nice chat with, a nice review, and a nice interview. Well, well, family stepped in, and that was sweet to see. Bill Mullen, Devin's father, decided to comment on the very episode. Flat out stating, this is Devin's father. Really enjoyed the podcast. Yes, I did listen to the whole thing. Your deconstruction of the album was harrowing. Ellipsis included. I'm glad I'm not a musician. Great work, Bill Mullen. I was, I was glad to see that, especially... Kind um, words. Yeah, kind words. Even, if you, even, even the harrowing, it's a kind word. Yeah. Um, of course, we don't really set out to destroy artists, um, and I... I don't think he took it that way, but yet, nevertheless, I set the record straight. Thanks for listening, Mr. Mullen. Despite the harrowing experience, we're glad you enjoyed it. Indeed, art is a battle over thin lines, but whether harrowing, sobering, or enlightening, it's all worth it. Best of wishes to the artist's future endeavors. As for Devin, he was a pleasure to have on. His astute perspectives were a welcomed counterpoint. To say nothing of his music, I'm sure you're very proud. That was my little response. I, I, I like... I have this personal connection to when family members comment on or friends of the of the guests or artists comment yeah. on. Fun fact, my mother listened to the very same episode. Probably the first episode she'd listened to in maybe ever. Wow. At least in full. Yeah. Oh, interesting. What did she think? Um, She flat out said there was a side of me that she doesn't know. Which I imagine is true for, again, you know, All this whole us. project. Yeah. Like, 140... Episodes will probably change your impressions and special, certainly your deliveries. That is true. Um, from here we'll go to, of course, figuring out what we're doing next week. Uh, that's John's responsibility. John, where are you taking us, buddy? Back in 1985, due to a biking accident with a broken wrist and a burgled apartment, two Johns, Linnell and Flansburg, began recording music on an answering machine and giving out the numbers so that people could actually hear these songs. True story. They called it Dial-A-Song. Well, very recently, this, this duo, who call themselves They Might Be Giants, uh, started doing this again. 
And from that, they released a new album, Glean. We've already reviewed them in... Um, that was episode 38, I believe. That was They Might Be Giants Nanobots. Two years ago. Now we have a new piece by them. With tons of set musicians, extra guys thrown on there, and plenty of trumpet work from what I saw. Uh, this is an interesting throwback. Something they did 30 years ago, and did for almost 20 years. Um as sort of like a freebie for the fans and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we got a Dial-A-Song album, so uh, who knows? Might be more of what we already got. Might be more new stuff. It's They Might Be Giants. It's their 17th, 18th album. I already lost track. It's, it should be fun. It's fun to, to have John pick this, because I picked it the last time we did it. So if they release another album in like two more years and Steve picks it, it'll make uh, the round. Well, supposedly this That's right. Then song, at that point, it's technically yeah. a, a long-related all-pick. All all yeah, yeah, that's true. All there adds up to us all sacrificing the same amount. Um, I'm excited for that. I mean, the last album was very eclectic, um, Danobots. I was very happy with it, so I'm excited to do this. Um, it's Glean. What kind of a... That's a great title. It is, I'm excited. It is a great title. Well, I gotta say this for They Might Be Giants, they are incredibly prolific. And while we may not get to all of their work, I'm definitely excited to see this project. It, it, it's, Maybe it'll it's, be as good as their gold-earning and, I believe, award-winning Here Come the One Two Threes children's album back in about five or ten years ago. Okay. Not familiar. Yeah, <laughs> that one's over my head, but say. sure. As Steve would say, sure. Sure. Um, oh, come on. That's a group expression now. It pretty much is a group expression. Uh, most of our expressions become group expressions, let's be honest. Sure. Um, thanks for listening, guys. As always, you know the spiel. Um, let's just do our sign-off and go to bed. So remember, everybody, music is life, and, and life, life is, is good. If you enjoyed this and other album analyses, topics, and guests, please subscribe to the Crash Chords Podcast on iTunes, where you can also rate us and review us. For more media, also subscribe to Matt's one-on-one interview series, Crash Chords Autographs. To receive emails on all new content, subscribe at the top of our homepage. Also receive updates by liking us on Facebook, following us on Twitter at Crash Chords Web, our Tumblr, and our YouTube channel. And remember, keep the discussion going, because music is life, and life is good. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to share them in the comment board below each post. Otherwise, email us directly at admin at crashchords.com.